Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we will look at the recent discovery of hundreds of bodies buried behind a jail in unmarked graves, and how that has sparked a renewed discussion about the futility and counterproductiveness of our system of incarceration, and the context of our history that has brought us to this point. Sources today include the PBS NewsHour, Olora Nadi on YouTube, Jacobin Radio, Al Jazeera English, and Knowing Better, with additional members-only clips from Beyond Prisons and Millennials Are Killing Capitalism. I understand, Ms. Wade, you contacted the Jackson Police Department after reporting that your son was missing several times, even after he had been buried, without your knowledge. Give us a sense of what they told you over those many months and what those months were like for you, not knowing where your son was. Well, it was devastating to me because um, I didn't know where he were. And then I was calling them. They didn't have no information to let me know. have they, you know, found any information? All the, you know, details that I gave them for leads, you know, they never came back to me to say, well, you know, that lead, that lead led it to something that we can work with. And I just couldn't believe that he had disappeared off the face of earth and nobody knows where he at. And it was just horrible for me. And every day I wake up, I just want, I just look, 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 just looking for him, just out in the streets looking for him. And I mean, that's heartbreaking for a mother and can't say hello, don't know how to get in touch with him. That is a horrible thing for a mother. Mr. Crump, after it was discovered that Dexter had been killed, that he had been buried in this grave. Uh, His body was exhumed in November. There was an autopsy conducted. He was given a proper burial. But I also understand a wallet was found in his front pocket with his ID, his home address, his insurance card. What's the explanation officials give for why no one was notified he had been killed and buried? There really is no explanation that they have offered. They claimed that they tried to reach out to Ms. Bettison and you should know that Ms. Bettison is the named plaintiff in a lawsuit against the Jackson Police Department because they killed her brother three years earlier. Uh, she went through two criminal trials, had several press conferences. So when they called her house, if they did call her house like they claimed, They knew where she lived. They knew how to get in contact with her if they really wanted to notify her that her son Dexter had been hit by a police car. So it is very suspicious that they would just bury him in a proper's grave because they said they could not identify his next of kin. Ms. Bettison does not accept it. And because of her tenacity, it has exposed all of these loved ones being dropped in a hole in a bag behind a Mississippi jail. Mr. Crump, the Jackson mayor did say there were mistakes. He also just said that Dexter Wade's death was a tragic accident. He said there was no malicious intent in failing to notify the family. We know the police department has new notification procedures right now. What recourse are you specifically seeking right now in these for these families you represent? We're seeking to have the Federal Department of Justice come in and do an investigation to make sure that each and every one of these citizens, disproportionately black citizens whose lives matter, will be identified, their families notified, and them given a proper funeral. And I should say, Ms. Wade, I mentioned families because you are not alone here. There's been, in the last few months, the discovery at least two other men, 40-year-old Mario Moore and 39-year-old Jonathan Hankins, were also killed and buried in that same cemetery and their families not notified for months. From your perspective, Ms. Wade, what do you want to see happen now? Well, for the first of all, I feel like that uh, the city needs to give me an acknowledgement to say that, hey, I'm sorry. I mean, just give me some kind of closure and explain to me what actually happened to my son on that freeway that night. You know, how did it actually occur? You know, just what went down, the events that went down with that. 
And I want to see justice. I want to see justice done for this because it's wrong. It's wrong to take somebody's child and bury them in a field and take, and I didn't even get a last chance to say anything to my child or either I didn't even get a last chance to just say, baby, I love you. Just to look down on them and say, baby, I love you. They haven't even came and called me and said, Miss Wade, could you come down and we explain to you what happened? I mean, I haven't even got a word. And so how do that feel? That makes you feel like they are guilty. They are guilty of a crime because they can't tell you what happened. Miss Wade, do I understand correctly that the mayor, no one from the police department has reached out to you to explain what happened to your son? No, no one have reached out to me to say explain it, you know, to explain what happened to my son. But I did at least have city supervisors, you know, the supervisors, the board supervisor to say, you know, that they hated what happened to me. But I haven't had said anything. Nobody from JPD, Jackson Police Department, mm -hmm. have came to me and acknowledged me. Mr. Crump, the story gets even more disturbing with this discovery of 215 bodies in that cemetery. What do we know about those bodies? We know based on the records from the coroner's office that since uh, 2016, in the last eight years, we can identify 215 individuals that were buried behind that jail and their families have not been notified. Furthermore, <laughs> Mr. Wade was number 672. That means there are 671 other people buried behind that jail, marked with only a number. heard about Rikers, yet very few people seem to be aware of the fact that it's a pre-trial detention center, which I do believe is something in and of itself worth noting. Think about that. Rikers has been open since 1932. That's almost a century of torturing black and brown New Yorkers on a daily basis in a city that at any given time has millions and millions of people, yet it was viral news when I, but one gal, told people that it was a pre-trial detention center. Which really speaks to one central truth. The devil works hard, but propaganda works so much harder. Because normally, awareness of an issue is a good thing. But they've turned Rikers' infamy against it. So people believe it's infamous because it's this super terrible place for super terrible people and not a pretrial detention center that looms as a threat over the heads of any poor New Yorker who could be accused of something as simple as stealing a bear or stealing a backpack. Over 85% of the people incarcerated at Rikers have not been convicted of a crime. They're being held there because they don't have the money to purchase their freedom. And because people can't purchase their freedom and fight their cases from the outside, they're often forced to take pleas and criminal convictions that they otherwise wouldn't have so that they can get out of the hellscape that is Rikers. And I want you to think about that. When the next time you see an article where they're sensationalizing, oh, this person has 64 criminal convictions, think about how it happens. That is usually a sign of somebody was homeless or mentally ill and they're being arrested for petty trivial things and the court is saying to them, you can plead to the charge now to the charge at arraignment or we can set bail on you and you'll go to Rikers and that happens enough time and you end up with this long long rap sheet that will be weaponized against you at a later date but one of the more well-known tragedies at Rikers that in many ways launched a campaign to close it was what happened to Khalif Browder Court records show Khalif had attempted suicide at least six times, spent 1,110 days behind bars, more than 800 of those in solitary confinement. His court date postponed more than 30 times. He endured all this having never been given a trial, never convicted of a crime. Finally, in June of 2013, all charges against Khalif were dismissed. But his experience exposed a troubled criminal justice system and the brutality of life behind bars. It's important to remember that what happened to Khalif Browder was not an anomaly. I think about Laylene Polanco, a 27-year-old trans woman who died in Rikers on $500 bail. I think about 24-year-old autistic Izzy Johnson, who died in Rikers on a dollar hold. 
I think about 25-year-old Brandon Rodriguez, who died at Rikers after he was left in a crowded intake pen for days, where he was beaten and then left in a locked shower stall, where he eventually hung himself in that shower stall. And they didn't even tell his mother. They had to find out in a Facebook post. I think about Stefan Cadu, whose mother spoke at a Rikers rally we held last year where she said this. My name is Lassandra Cadu. Stefan Cadu, who lost his life on the boat, AKA the barge, was my son. The boat is an extension of Rikers Island. No mother should go through what I've gone through and still going through. I got a call on September 22nd, around 10 o'clock, another inmate called my daughter, screaming that my son was dead. That's how I found out my child was dead. I haven't seen my son in two years because of the pandemic. I seen Zoom visits. Last time I seen my son was September 28th. My son turned 24 September 11th. My son died September 22nd, awaiting trial. Everyone there is awaiting trial. They're like she said, they're not convicted of a crime. They're just waiting and they shouldn't have to die. We need to decarcerate now. Before someone else's, before someone else loses their lives, another mother goes through what I'm going through every day. It's five months that I'm waking up without my son, and it's the most hurtful thing that I have to go through. To find out that there was a 16 person yesterday when I thought that I keep going and my son would be the last 12, which it doesn't make sense because there's 16 more. Four more, I mean, in May 16. I'm going through this. I'm going through this. Every mother who has a son, again, every mother, every mother, every mother who has a son, who has a son in jail, in its jail system, should be outraged. Any human being should be outraged, let alone a mother that's not getting up and speaking. I'm speaking for every person in that building. Every mother, again, should be outraged on a system on how they're treating people. Take action. Do something, say something, speak up, do something. So in 2019, the campaign to close Rikers emerged and advocates introduced the plan to shut it down by first reducing the jail's population to 3,300. Because as it stands, Rikers was built to hold a maximum of 3,000 people. Yet there are over 5,000 people being incarcerated at Rikers right now, which is why people are being piled on top of one another why people are being held and locked in shower stalls. Instead, what former Mayor de Blasio agreed to was closing Rikers in exchange for four more jails in its place. Nonetheless, that's why bail reform was and is essential to decarcerating Rikers so it can eventually be closed. And it's been successful. Nearly 200,000 people who would have otherwise been unable to purchase their freedom have been able to fight their cases from the outside. And a higher percentage of people showed up to their court dates after bail reform was enacted. The failure to pay rate in New York City fell from 15% in 2019 to 9% in 2021 after the enactment of bail reform. Yet, bail reform has been under constant attack. U.S. prison population and jail population as well is just correctional population more broadly. We've got so many categories of uh, people whose lives are inhibited by the state. Just give us a rundown. Who is locked up and in what kinds of facilities? How many people? We usually hear two million. Does it come down a bit? It has come down a bit, um, you know, because of the pandemic. And when I say because of the pandemic, I want to be really clear that this was because of systemic slowdowns, Right. Jury trial stops in 2020, right? Because you couldn't get people together in a room the same way. You had all that stuff. You know, I'm not a cat with the lawyer that was on Zoom. Because of all these administrative hurdles, you had a, a giant slowdown in the criminal justice system that led downstream to a, a smaller prison and jail population. Now, we have put together uh, the data in our report, Mass Incarceration, the Whole Pie, from a few different data sources. The criminal justice system in this country is fragmented into prisons, state and federal, local jails, involuntary commitment facilities, psychiatric hospitals, youth detention centers, Indian country jails, U.S. Marshal Service uh, facilities, yada, 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 all these different ones. And so we have, in cobbling together the number of people who are in these facilities, we don't have data showing exactly how many people are locked up today, March 15th, 2023, but we do know 
how many people are locked up more or less since the pandemic uh, began and then also began to subside. And so it's about 1.9 million people. So off slightly, but uh, now what's the breakdown between um, prisons and jails? You've got about as uh, about half as many people in local jails as are in state prisons, uh, and then another 200,000 people in federal prisons. I think the important thing that many people don't understand is that most people who are locked up in this country are locked up in state prisons. These are facilities whose populations are driven by laws that are made by people that you elect, right? Uh, people that might have even you know put literature at your door or sent a volunteer to your door before. Mass incarceration is very local. There's you know also I think an under underappreciated fact is that you know there's about 420,000 people on any given day who are sitting behind bars in local jails awaiting trial. They haven't been convicted yet. And of course, we have all of this fear-mongering right now about um, bail reform causing rising crime. And so we should need to do away with bail reform. But the reality is that we're locking up hundreds of thousands of people in this country every single day uh, because we don't want them to go free uh, pre-trial. Now, the bail reform panic is just 100% nonsense, isn't it? Yes, it is. We did an analysis of 13 jurisdictions that both uh, conducted uh, bail reform uh, or passed significant pretrial reform and also studied the impacts uh, of that reform on uh, arrest rates and failure to appear rates and overall community crime rates. And what we found is that, with one exception, those jurisdictions saw basically no change in crime after that happened, or even they saw a decrease. Now, the one exception was New York, where the data that had come out uh, by the time that we were able to analyze it was we, we couldn't really tell what had happened. It's like some data showed an increase. And so we, we, we marked that one down as an increase at that point. Over time, the data has shown that actually uh, only a very, very tiny, I mean, like a fraction of a percent, I think, of people who are released pre-trial under the uh, New York bail reform laws have gone on to commit another violent crime. That law hasn't driven an increase in crime either. So what's driving the panic? Just the usual, we love cops stuff? Yeah. I think that what's driving the panic is an awareness that this is what lawmakers rely on. This is what lawmakers have always relied on to get reelected is to, you know, say, oh, we, you know, we've got, we've got crime. And, you know, the reason that crime is happening is because there are these certain people who are intrinsically bad people. Um, and we, you know, we can't have them on our streets in any, you know, way, shape or form, even if, um, these are people that we have, you know, only charged with crimes as opposed to actually convicting them of anything. And even if we have a presumption of innocence in the Constitution that implies that people probably shouldn't be locked up pretrial, it's on both sides of the aisle. You know, Republicans are obviously driving this narrative around crime as they drive the narrative around many, many things. But um, Democrats have pretty easily taken it up as well. Right. Cassie Hochul in New York here was was instrumental in pushing for rollbacks to bail reform and and recently succeeded. OK. And uh, just to bunk a myth or two here, uh, we hear a lot about how uh Private prisons are a major actor in all this, and uh, the provision of prison labor is also a driving force behind mass incarceration. Uh, either of these things true? Well, no. Uh, the, what we what we do in this report is uh, we provide a graphic showing the fraction of people who are locked up in prisons and jails nationwide who are in private facilities. It's about seven percent, right? The vast majority of people who are locked up are locked up in public facilities. But I do want to say this. Regarding both the, you know, the small, the actually small private prison population and the, you know, in effect, very small number of people, very, very small number of people in prison who are working for private companies. What's driving these narratives about private companies driving mass incarceration or controlling or being behind mass incarceration is, uh, I, I think, um, a, frankly, a media that is happy to divert people from understanding how incarceration really works. There are, you know, just, just to, you know, kind of zoom out a little bit, there's tons and tons of companies, uh, that profit off of, you know, incarcerated people every single day without actually running the prisons. There are hundreds of thousands of people in state prisons today who are working jobs for little to no wages. They just happen to be working for the prisons themselves. They're working for the state. I think if we really wrapped our minds around the fact that the prison system today needs incarcerated people's free or safe labor in order to run, that would prompt um, a major reckoning with, you know, the fact that we have this system in the first place and that we're locking up so many people. And, and that's why I think that the narrative that it's it's all Victoria's Secret enslaving people to make panties is so pervasive because it keeps people reckoning with that deeper truth. And then there's notions around, too, that uh, it's mostly the war on drugs is driving incarceration. Is that true? 
The war on drugs um, is, no, it's not driving, it's driving mass incarceration. 62% of people in prisons are are there because of a violent offense that has nothing to do with drugs, although they may well have been charged with other drug offenses in the process of getting to prison. We need to understand that, you know, this is a, this is a, a very substantial part of our prison system, but it's not, it's not the single driving factor behind mass incarceration. It's more prevalent in the federal prisons than the state prisons, right? It is. It is. And I, I do want to say, you know, like the drug policing and drug enforcement has led to some of the greatest injustices in our prison system today. You know, you have, uh, for instance, you've got about 40,000 women who are locked up in state prisons today because of a drug offense. Most of those women are mothers. When they get out of prison, they're not going to be able to get public housing, even though virtually all of them probably qualify just based on their extremely low incomes alone, right? The average income of a woman in prison before she was incarcerated was like $14,000 a year. And so the war on drugs is, is absolutely destroying people's lives. It also brings people into the criminal justice system who are then, you know, kept there and, and, and sucked into the system because, you know, they can't pay a fine or a fee that was associated with their charge or their conviction because maybe they missed their court date, which is very easy to do, even if you don't intend to, because they happen to be put on probation. And then, you know, they were put on an ankle monitor and then the ankle monitor, which ankle monitors are very hypersensitive to people, you know, straying outside the borders of where they're supposed to be. It could have picked up, uh, you know, a violation or two. Then they're, you know, then they have black marks on their records. And so you can get caught up in the criminal justice system and you can even go to prison for, you know, these very low level offenses. And so I, I do want to say that the, the war on drugs is important. It's just not the single driver. Another myth uh, is that crime victims support long prison sentences. Uh, you've got evidence to the contrary, right? That's right. That's right. The Alliance for Safety and Justice uh, conducted a national survey of 1,500 people who reported crime victimization within the last 10 years. And we visualize some of that survey data in our report. Um, and I, I, the two that stick out to me the most first is that when people who were victims of crime were asked whether they preferred holding people who do harm accountable by putting them in prison or through options beyond prison, right, um, such as, you know, mental health treatment or, um, or other community service or, you know, uh, what, what have you, um, only 18% said prison. Three quarters said options beyond prison. So, um, it, you know, what's clear is that people who are, you know, most impacted by crime actually don't think that prison is working or doing the job to keep their communities safe. The other one that, that, um, sticks with me and this speaks to what we were talking about, about bail before was that, uh, when they were asked if they'd prefer to keep people in jails pre-trial or use alternatives to incarceration, just 21% of crime victims said jails. 71% said that they would prefer alternatives. And underscore, these are people who've been victims of crimes. They're not innocent bystanders or God knows, you know, politicians. That's right. It's a nationally representative sample of people who report crime victimization. I'm speaking with Wanda Bertram of the Prison Policy Initiative. You said earlier, I believe that 60% of the people in state prisons are there for violent crimes. Is the definition of violence as clear as it might sound in the, uh, on first hearing? No, it, I mean, it isn't. Like that, and that's something that people have begun to talk about more is that, you know, you can be sentenced for a violent crime, but that could be something that, you know, that, that could be um, a crime that was committed without actually being hurt. There was just a weapon involved. It could be a crime that took place where, you know, the circumstances were such that if people actually knew about it, they might feel um, a lot more sympathy with you. Like perhaps you were defending yourself from, you know, uh, from your abuser, right? If you're in a domestic abuse situation, this is why a lot of uh, women are in prison. And it could be something that you did when you were a child. None of the circumstances around the offense are told uh, or described through um, this label violence. And that's important, right? Because not only are, you know, not, not only does, does labeling someone a violent criminal make it easier to lock them up for uh, untold numbers of years, it also, in today's day and age, makes them ineligible for all sorts of reforms that have passed. Uh, you know, for instance, Good time credits, like an expanded expanded good time credit system that allows people to earn more time off their sentences for good behavior. Often those rules, those reforms, exclude anybody who's been convicted of a violent offense. Oftentimes in states that restore uh, parole or early release opportunities to people who are incarcerated, they exclude anybody convicted of a violent offense. During COVID, a lot of states said, we're going to explore releasing more people. Well, they didn't, but they when, even when they said that they were going to, they stipulated we're not going to consider anybody convicted of a violent offense. And when people get out of prison, this moniker violent follows them around in terms of, you know, what they can and can't do and what rights they're excluded from. Um, in Florida, 
they only passed um, the reenfranchisement or the bill that reenfranchised uh, people with felony records for people who were not convicted of certain violent offenses or sexual offenses. So, you know, the, the violent label is really, really important and uh, has, has done a lot of work to destroy people's lives. I think the most asked question to the abolitionist is, and I think it's a fair question, is, but what about the people who pose an immediate threat to others? What do we do with the child molesters? What do we do with the rapists? What do we do with the serial killers? How do we, in the absence of the current prison, as we understand it, deal with people who pose an immediate threat to communities? Well, you know, it's so interesting, isn't it, Mark, that... uh, um, Uh, people always go to the worst possible uh, example and then uh, use that as a justification for uh, 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 the treatment of millions of people uh, who uh, have not engaged in that kind of uh, harmful uh, activity. Now, you know, no one is denying uh, that there are... uh, serious acts of harm and violence that are produced by um, individuals uh, who uh, uh, are a threat, a threat to others and uh, to themselves. Uh, But if we simply argue that because there is this relatively small population of people, then we lock up more than two million people, uh, I mean, to me, that is illogical. that's that's the, that's the first point. The second point is that imprisonment reproduces those very problems. And so the violent individual who goes to prison uh, is is in a situation where she or he or they become even more violent as a result of the structural violence of the institution than they were when they went in. Um, So in my opinion, and I think this is what most abolitionists uh, uh, would argue, it's, it's, it's necessary to pull back and ask larger questions, not only how we deal with this immediate issue, but rather how to deal with it in the long term. How can we uh, understand and um, get rid of uh, uh, the conditions that produce such violence in individuals? You know, I think gender violence is um, is, is is probably a really good example uh, for uh, this larger problem. Uh, simply by Im- imprisoning uh, people who engage in gender violence uh, uh, has not had an impact at all on the incidence of gender violence in the world. It is still the most pandemic form of violence. Uh, So that, it seems to me, uh, would uh, signal that we have to figure out how to deal with the problem itself, rather than um, simply incarcerating people who commit the violence. How can we deal with the conditions that, 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 produce uh, individuals that uh, are prime to uh, engage in these kinds of violent acts against women, against uh, 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 um, LGBTQ people, against uh, um, trans people, all of the, the, the forms of violence that we would categorize under the term gender violence. So the larger question, <clears throat> is how do we address the ideology that encourages people to to take out their frustrations and their fears uh, uh, by attacking uh, uh, um, others in that way? And it it seems that there is uh, a very narrow idea of what restraint can look like, what separation can look like. The Quakers uh, talked about, in that book, Instead of Prisons, they talked about this idea of restraint of the few, saying that there might be some people who need to be pulled out of society because they pose an immediate threat. But it seems that the challenge might also be that the only way we've imagined that is through caging and that there might be other ways, whether it's mental health support, whether it's uh, some some other structure um, that can allow someone who is a serial killer or someone who is a child molester to be pulled out of the space where they're doing harm. 
uh, without using the cage as the primary mechanism. But that requires a new kind of imagination. And it seems that there might be a crisis of imagination in the policy realm, in the academic realm, in the, in, in, in the activist realm. So I, I'm going to ask you to help us uh, imagine a little bit before we go. Uh, when you think about an affirmative vision of the world, not just what we don't want police and prisons, but what we do want. What does that look like for Angela Davis? What does the abolitionist future look like? Well, I've always linked abolition with socialism. Uh, so I, I, I would say that uh, in imagining uh, the future, uh, it cannot be a capitalist future. It cannot be a future uh, that is based on uh, the exploitation of others. Uh, and um, the this future would be one in which um, the necessities of life are not commodified, in which one's capacity to live a fruitful uh, uh, life is not dependent on uh, one's capacity to pay for those services. Uh, so, you know, the... The point that I'm making is that we have to go further than these two discrete institutions, uh, that we have to think about uh, uh, re reorganizing our entire world. Uh, and I think that um, the, the, the danger of, um, of positing abolition as a, a narrow uh, uh, strategy that only addresses particular individuals uh, is 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 one that will prevent us from understanding uh, that this is about revolution. This is about uh, um, this is about um, environmental justice. Uh, uh, this is about uh, workers' rights. Uh, this is a this is about uh, eradicating gender violence. Uh, you know, this is about making education free uh, for everyone. Uh, uh, and so I could continue uh, with that, you know, kind of uh, imagining of, of the future. Uh, but I do think that the abolitionist uh, imagination is central uh, to uh, the process of envisioning a new world and developing uh, the strategies uh, for challenging the current one. When Birth of a Nation was released in 1915, everyone, North and South, bought its message. This was the first feature-length American film and quickly became the first Hollywood blockbuster. In the film, the abolition of slavery is depicted as a mistake, unleashing animalistic black men on our unsuspecting, innocent white women. The KKK are the heroes, swooping in to save the South and restore order. This confirmed the story that white people wanted to hear and turned the defeat of the Confederacy into a tale of martyrdom. This Rewrite of American history is known as the lost cause and is still pushed by textbooks today. This movie is also directly responsible for the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan, who began terrorizing black families by burning crosses on their lawns. The original KKK didn't do that. That was invented by the movie. I told you you wouldn't believe what brought them back. Frederick Douglass died in 1895, which meant that the most influential black leader was now Booker T. Washington, who pushed a more gradualist message. He urged black people to accommodate white demands for subservience while building up their skills. He told them to learn a trade to hold the keys to their own advancement and not move up north. Don't worry, white people will come around eventually. Needless to say, this message was praised by many southern whites. By 1901, they had gradually disenfranchised every black person in the South by passing laws and writing new state constitutions. They obviously couldn't ban an entire race from voting because of the 15th Amendment. Instead, they instituted poll taxes and literacy tests to accomplish the same goal. You all know about these, even PragerU mentions them. But just like the black codes, you probably have a very watered down understanding of them. Let's start with the literacy tests. Nearly every state required you to know how to read and write if you wanted to vote, which 
sounds reasonable on the surface, right? Here's an actual literacy test from the state of Louisiana. It starts off with some fairly straightforward questions. Draw a line around the number or letter of this sentence, cross out the longest word, circle the first first letter of the alphabet, simple. But then you get to number 10. In the first circle below, write the last letter of the first word beginning with L. What? Number 12. Draw a line from circle 2 to circle 5 that will pass below circle 2 and above circle 5. Come on! This is only the first page. There are 30 total questions, and one wrong answer denotes failure of this test. Now, be honest. Is that what you thought a literacy test was when you learned about it in school? Because I'm willing to bet this was never explained to you. These tests were arbitrarily given out to anyone who couldn't prove a fifth grade education, and the questions were just vague enough that any answer could be subjectively wrong. Many states also put up financial barriers to voting. Mississippi required a poll tax of $3, which is just over 100 in today's money. Would you vote if it cost you that much to do it every time? I doubt it. Virginia's was only $1, but you had to be paying it for each of the previous three years before you could vote. Louisiana required you to own at least $300 in property, but included an exemption for anyone who could vote on January 1st, 1867, or their descendants. This is the origin of the phrase grandfather clause. This loophole was intended to let poor white people vote even if they didn't meet the literacy or financial requirements, as long as their grandfather was allowed to vote. Virtually no black people were voting in the South in 1867, so their descendants didn't qualify. Disenfranchisement has several knock-on effects that you might not immediately think about. It's a lot more than just your ability to vote. You'll also find it near impossible to run for office. This obviously meant that there were no black representatives in state or federal government, which is why the nice PragerU lady stopped counting them in 1900. But this also affected local office. There were no black sheriffs, constables, or justices of the peace. Not being registered to vote also means that you couldn't be called for jury duty, so black defendants were almost always tried and convicted by all-white juries. By the time Birth of a Nation and Woodrow Wilson came around, black people had been almost entirely pushed out of government. Confederate statues were being put up in the North and South, and the Lost Cause had completely taken over the historical narrative. Race riots occurred in places like Springfield, Illinois, Charleston, South Carolina, and Tulsa, Oklahoma. Lynching had become so popular that children were let out of school early so they could attend, and newspapers advertised the event days beforehand. People took selfies with the deceased and left with souvenirs and postcards. The violence around the country got so bad that in 1936, Victor Green began publishing The Negro Motorist Green Book, a travel guide with a list of hotels, gas stations, and barbershops that are friendly to black people in every city. They were working on a fictional version of this in the first season of Lovecraft Country. This was based on a real thing. These were printed all the way through the civil rights movement and ended in 1966. Think about what that means for a moment. This country was so hostile to black people that for three decades, they needed to have their own separate travel guide where every listed location had to be vetted for safety. Because if you went into the wrong town, you might disappear forever. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, yesterday, December 7th, 1941. If you're wondering what FDR has to do with slavery, I'm guessing you've forgotten the primary question of this video. Again. After giving that speech, President Roosevelt asked his cabinet what the enemy was going to use against the United States in the coming propaganda war. The answer was the treatment of the Negro. In addition to disenfranchisement and segregation, the convict leasing debt peonage system was still holding thousands of people in bondage. A man named Charles Bledsoe pled guilty to peonage in Mobile, Alabama in October 1941 just two months before Pearl Harbor. America could hardly claim the moral high ground or point fingers at how Japan was treating the Chinese or Koreans when we had our own subjugated underclass. So on December 12, 1941, FDR's Justice Department issued Circular 3591. A summary of the department files on alleged peonage violations discloses numerous instances of prosecution denied by United States attorneys, the main reason stated as being the absence of the element of debt. In the matter of control by one over the person of another, the circumstances under which each person is placed must be determined. 
i.e. the subservience of the will of one to the other. Open force, threats, or intimidation need not be used to cause a person to go involuntarily from one place to another to work and to remain at such work, nor does evidence of kind treatment show an absence of involuntary servitude. In the United States, one cannot sell himself as a peon or a slave. The law is fixed and established to protect the weak-minded, the poor, the miserable. Men will sometimes sell themselves for a meal of victuals, or contract with another who acts as surety on his bond to work out the amount of the bond upon his release from jail. Any such contract is positively null and void, and the procuring and causing of such contract to be made violates the law. To assure emphasis on the issue of involuntary servitude and slavery in considering these cases, the Federal Bureau of Investigation has been requested to change the title on its reports from peonage to read Involuntary Servitude and Slavery. This memo told prosecutors to stop trying these cases under the federal anti-peonage statute because so many people were using the same defense as John W. Pace, that since the debt wasn't real, this wasn't peonage, it was slavery and slavery wasn't a crime. They were told to stop calling it peonage and start calling it what it is, slavery. The memo provided them with a list of other statutes that could apply and told them to aggressively prosecute these crimes as part of the war effort. Over the next few months, dozens of cases would be opened across the country. In September 1942, on a farm outside of Beeville, Texas, a man named Alfred Irving became the last chattel slave to be freed in America. Not indentured servant or convict laborer or debt peon, slave. Here's a news article from the Times saying as much. The Skrbarchik family held him as a slave for at least four years. They starved him and beat him with chains, whips, and ropes so regularly that he was permanently disfigured. The family was found guilty and sentenced to federal prison. The Corpus Christi Times said that the trial and its conclusion will undoubtedly be said in the future to have given a decisive setback to the enemy propaganda machine. So, in a way, by bombing Pearl Harbor, the Japanese ended slavery in the United States. When people notice the obvious inequality in our country and wonder why black people haven't caught up yet despite slavery ending over 150 years ago, they're wrong. It ended 80 years ago. When was the last slave freed in America? It wasn't after the Civil War, it was during World War II in September 1942. Our current president, Joe Biden, was born two months later. Until he graduated from college, black people had to drink out of a separate water fountain. Segregation didn't end until the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Jim Crow ended with the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which allowed black people to vote again. But just a few years after that, Nixon came along with his war on drugs, which disenfranchised and imprisoned even more black people people on purpose. My police militarization video goes into more detail, but if you don't believe me. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin, then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Why haven't we done reparations? We clearly owe them. And by we, I don't mean white people. I mean the government of the United States. Since the colonial days, the laws of this country have been used to force black people into a permanent underclass. For the first hundred years after independence, the Constitution not only allowed, but protected slavery. And immediately after it was abolished, the criminal justice system was used as leverage to extract as much labor and wealth out of black people as possible, either directly by sentencing them to hard labor in the coal mines, or indirectly by issuing an exorbitant fine that was then paid for by a plantation owner who held that debt over them while simultaneously increasing it so it took years to pay off. If they tried to leave, they'd be arrested for breaking a labor contract and given even more hard labor. This blatantly unjust system created generations of people who rightfully fear going out alone and have learned not to expect help from the authorities. They don't trust the police and have lost all faith in the criminal justice justice system. And who can blame them? For almost a hundred years, the primary purpose of the judicial system was to coerce
coerce black people into meeting the labor demands and social customs of the white majority. This created a century-old myth about black criminality that persists to this day. The government of the United States did that, not some slave owners who died over 150 years ago, and they arguably continue to do it with the war on drugs. Joe Biden was instrumental in introducing the modern version of pig laws when he was in the Senate. We went from slave codes and chattel slavery to black codes and neo-slavery, which is convict leasing and debt peonage, to the war on drugs and the prison industrial complex. It's basically a continuum of oppression against black people. This version of history, otherwise known as what actually happened explains much more about the current state of racial inequality in our country than the standard American history myth we were all taught. We've just heard clips today, starting with the PBS NewsHour reporting on the discovery of hundreds of unmarked graves behind a Mississippi jail. Olorinati on YouTube discussed Rikers Island Pretrial Detention Center and the need for bail reform. Jacobin Radio held an in-depth discussion about the counterproductiveness of our punitive prison system. Al Jazeera English spoke with Angela Davis about her vision of abolition. And Knowing Better laid out the long history that has brought the U.S. to our current state of dysfunction regarding our justice system. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Beyond Prisons discussing the historical perceptions about who deserves rehabilitation. Talking about the racial limits um, to deterrence and rehabilitation, right? So if deterrence and rehabilitation is only for white men, that means that everyone else gets to go to prison. And Millennials Are Killing Capitalism applied a radical lens to discussions of prison reform. It's the other side that's intensely invested, not in understanding what's actually going on and like facing contradictions and the violence and like genocide this country is founded on and depends upon. They're heavily invested upon kind of negotiating and renegotiating and reconstructing like plausible deniability in a position of comfort. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support. Or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. For more on the concept of prison abolition, check out our episode from back in 2019. It was number 1313, Why Prison Abolition is Not Nearly as Scary as It Sounds. Again, that was episode 1313, and there will be a link in the show notes. Now to wrap up, it feels like it makes sense to point out the obvious parallels between unmarked graves being found behind a jail and unmarked graves being found behind residential schools housing native children who'd been taken from their families. The deeper lesson to be gleaned here goes far beyond investigating the specific malfeasance that you know almost certainly took place in almost any scenario like that. Beyond the individual crimes, it's about understanding how indicative cases like these are of the disregard many have for communities deemed unworthy. Now, members heard today a detailed discussion about explicit beliefs about who is and who is not deemed worthy of rehabilitation. And this line of thinking sort of sits at the core of our mentality behind a punitive penal system. The fundamental debate being whether those who have committed crimes against society should be punished or rehabilitated. And some being worthy of rehabilitation and some not is clearly a parallel train of thought to the idea of who is and is not worthy of having their remains treated with respect after death, you know, which families are worth notifying of the death, which people deserve a marked grave, and of course, which communities is it reasonable to victimize in such a way that their lives are actually put in danger in the first place, thereby leading the perpetrators to end up having to feel like they have to cover their actions by continuing the victimization after death, by covering it up? 
recognizing these patterns is what will help push broader society to begin to question the systems in place, not just the individual actions by some in individual cases. Now, whatever the details of the case of the unmarked graves in Mississippi turn out to be, it will be important to not just see them as an individual crime or an individual accident or an individual case of neglect. It will be another star in a constellation, a very large and very detailed constellation that presents a very clear picture of the reasons that systems are in need of fundamental change, not just minor reform, and definitely not just the clearing out of a few bad apples. That is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about this or anything else. You can leave us a voicemail or send us a text at 202-999-3991 or simply email me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and Ben, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships. You can join them today by signing up at bestoftheleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good and often funny weekly bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. You'll find that link in the show notes along with a link to join our Discord community where you can also continue the discussion. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.